0: former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book, Mistreated. While we, hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book, Mistreated, why we think we're getting good health care and why we're
1: usually wrong. And I am Jeremy Corr host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past.
0: Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype.
1: Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com.
2: Hi, welcome to New Books in Medicine. I'm your host, Dana Greenfield, and today I'm speaking with Zoe Wool, Professor of Anthropology at Rice University. Professor Wool received her PhD in anthropology from the University of Toronto and works at the intersections of medical anthropology, science and technology studies, and critical disability studies. Today, we talk about her new book, After War, The Weight of Life at Walter Reed, which is an ethnography of rehabilitating everyday life for injured soldiers in the war on terror. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine. I'm Dana Greenfield, the host of the channel. And today we're talking to Zoe Wool about her new book, After War, The Weight of Life at Walter Reed. Um, Zoe Wool, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you very much.
2: I was wondering if we could begin the interview uh, by you telling us just a bit about yourself.
3: Sure. Um, So I am... I am an anthropologist, um, although I sort of imagine myself as having many, a creature of being a creature of many feet. Uh, I have one foot in, um, anthropology, mostly medical anthropology, a foot in disability studies, a foot in queer theory and a foot in science and technology studies. Um, and that is how I, uh, navigate the intellectual terrain that I inhabit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I am, um, Uh, at the university, Rice University, which is in Houston. So that's where I am speaking to you from today. Uh, And I, before that I was at, um, at Columbia. Um, and before that I was at Rutgers at an interdisciplinary Institute for health research. Um, and before that I was in Toronto for many, many years, which is where I did my, um, my PhD.
2: Great. Um, that Those are a lot of uh, exciting places to be working and studying um, and all really cool fields to be uh, bringing together in your work. Um, I'm wondering, how did you come to this particular topic?
3: Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the time people ask me if I have a military family or if I come from a military background and if that's where my, my interest in the topic comes from. And I used to say, no, I, I, don't. Um, but as I began to prepare for my field work, when I was doing my dissertation, I realized that that wasn't entirely true or that, um, there was something very interesting about the ease with which I felt that I could say I did not come from a military family because actually my uncle, um, was, uh, in the American military and my grandfather had been in the, um, in the, British military during World War II. Um, And I didn't grow up uh, orienting to any members of my family, those two in particular, as veterans. And I didn't hear war stories from them when I saw them. But it struck me as very interesting all of a sudden that I was marking myself as someone who was outside of this sphere of military life, when in fact, my life and my, the existence of my, my family and its trajectory was marked by, by military service, um, and also by wars in other ways, because, um, on my father's side, m- my, uh, grandparents, uh, fled Russia and Eastern Europe, um, as refugees. So I, uh, it became very interesting to me to think about the one, one version of an answer to one version of the question that you just asked me. Um, but the, the real answer how I got interested in this topic was that I had been, um, doing my undergraduate degree in critical discourse analysis. And, uh, at the time of September 11th, all of a sudden there was this discursive object that emerged called the war on terror. And I was fascinated to see this thing being constructed and and contested. And it struck me as very interesting to think about the material aspects of this discursive object. So what are the material sides of the war on terror, which a lot of people at the time were saying, were dismissing the war on terror as just rhetoric, right? As just political rhetoric, as if political rhetoric had no material effect, right? And so I originally envisioned a project that was going to be, um, a a combination of linguistic anthropology and sociocultural anthropology, looking at the discourse of the war on terror, maybe a multi-sided project in which I was going to talk to politicians and journalists and, and Afghan refugees and American soldiers. And, um, was widely, wisely advised to narrow my scope a little bit for a a dissertation and, um, honed in on American soldiers as a particularly interesting population, uh, given the idea about the production of violence and the way that it seems to be removed from, uh, political rhetoric, or it seems to be removed from this idea of a, a war of words. So, um, I kind of honed in on that. And I think the other thing that was happening at the time was that I was pretty involved in anti-war activism in Toronto, which is where I was living at the time. And um, I, you know, I kind of felt this tension. I was was interested in all of these, these issues and questions and things about language. And I was interested in... Um, concepts and questions of re- representation. I was interested in political theory, um, but I also felt torn, as I think a lot of a lot of students do when they're on the precipice of of uh, imagining a future in academia. Um, that you know, I I felt this tension between uh, intellectual production and uh, kind of you know, boots on the ground, uh, work to, to borrow a military term. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I was going to marches, I was, um, going to, uh, uh, protests that were part of what was then called the anti-globalization movement. And, um, that was very important to me that, that kind of direct action was very important to me. And in 2003, um, you know, the, the cold, dark winter of 2003, when the U S invaded Iraq, um, I was, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to say it. I, I became sort of heartbroken in a way. Um, you know, I had me and many people in my community had been putting all of this, uh, work and, and effort and, you know, sweat and, uh, uh labor into, um, voicing our, our intense, you know, political, moral existential rage at what the United States was proposing to do. And there was this amazing, seemed to be this amazing coming together of people across generations, across um, uh, uh, identity categories, across um, political spaces and around the globe to speak with one voice against the imminent invasion of of iraq and when the united states invaded iraq i just um i thought i can't this is not something that i can do anymore this is not something this is not a way that i can perform critique anymore um i don't have i lost faith in that form of activism um and i'm very glad that other people did not and that other people continue to, um, uh, to engage in critique in that way. But that was also a really important moment for my trajectory because that was really the time that I thought, okay, I'm going to devote myself to being an academic and, um, that doesn't mean I'm going to give up on other forms of politics and other forms of critique entirely, but it does mean that I see, the main source of my, the main space for my um, uh, contributions to um, critical social thought and life being in the space of the academy and being in the space of kind of intellect and, and writing um, of a particular sort. So that also all kind of pushed me um, into this project.
2: Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. That's really, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, after reading this book, I didn't know that about you. And um, I felt like the book contained uh, many different registers and tones. Um, and I don't know if that's something you thought about in writing it, but um, but there were there were moments where um well, there were many moments where you were the analytical social scientist, and then there were these sort of moments where you were i don't know how you'd feel about this term but like a a witness of some set, uh, of some sort um describing and um giving us really beautiful um a beautiful sense of what uh, what you participated in, what you saw, but then there were other moments where I felt um, I don't want to use the word anger, but there were just there were moments where um, yeah, maybe anger was coming through or a passion of some sort. Um, Especially this up uh, this part where you were sort of rattling off all these statistics <laughs> oh, um, that yeah. you, you could have told us about the army, about the wars, about the violence, um, but that's not what you were going to do, but it is what you were doing. Um anyway, so I, it just occurred to me um what uh what it was what it meant for you um to bring this foundation or background um of anti-war activism into this kind of work, how did that show up for you in both the doing of the ethnography and then the writing of the ethnography?
3: Yeah, I think um, that's a really interesting question, and for me, there is this there is a tension, um, you know, that I th- that I think registers in the book and is certainly something that I think about um, in other work that I do, uh, w- which is about the way that n- anti-war narratives become particularly, you know, in, in each, in each iteration, in each generation of, of American warfare and other kinds of warfare, anti-war narratives become uh, uh, you know, they have their own politics of respectability around them. They have their own forms of righteousness that become very sedimented. And I had lost faith in a lot of those at the same time as I recognized their importance and their significance. Um, And, you know, this isn't, this is a, this is a problem of, of, um, of public politics in general. It's not, you know, unique to, to, um, to war and anti-war movements, but, um, one of the things that, that I felt very strongly about, and I, I feel very strongly about, um, in terms of ethnography and anthropology is that, and, and, you know, other people, um, feel differently, certainly, but, uh, that, Part of the difficult ethical um, terrain that anthropologists and ethnographers have to navigate is about uh, trying to maintain the integrity of the contradictions of the worlds that we encounter, because there are always contradictions in those worlds. And um, that makes it very hard to take a world that you are trying to convey and use it, leverage it for a black and white argument or an argument that everybody already knows, right? Um, uh, and there is, a, there is ethnography is by nature an extractive um, process. There's no way around that. Um, there are things that we can do to uh, uh, mitigate the, potentially ethically problematic nature of that extraction. But um, I think to me, the, in some ways, the, the complexity of ethnography is a kind of disappointment to black and white politics, black and white anti-war politics. And, um, and I wish that it were otherwise, right. I wish that I could, I could say, look, I spent all of this time, all of this time with, with Uh, these people and getting to know them and becoming imbricated in their lives. And here is a story that I can give you that is going to make everybody say uh, you can't send any more soldiers to Iraq or Afghanistan. (laughs) Um, You know, but, uh, but that's not how, that's not how the situation is. That's not how these lives work or are configured. Um, And also that's not uh, what the people who I am working with, um, understood me to be doing, and it's not what I was doing. Right. I'm not out there. I don't have a particular angle that I'm trying to find evidence for. Right. And that I think is also, you know, it speaks to the nature of, of ethnographic and anthropological knowledge production. Um, and the, the nature of knowledge in general, um, and that, you know, the point that you, uh, the part of the book that you point to in the introduction where I'm saying, you know, I, I could tell you this, I could give you these statistics about, you know, who's in the military and who gets killed in the military and all of these things. Um, uh, that is about both recognizing the utility of, of, um, of facts that seem to stand on their own and undermining the certainty that is produced when those facts circulate out of context. Um, And I think that, you know, right now, living in this sort of era of alternative facts or the post-truth era, whatever we want to call it, um, that's a really important thing to think about is, you know, not saying, oh, now you lefties are experiencing the revenge of social constructionism. but to say, um, you know, facts are produced in a context and they need to be made sense of in a context. Um, and there's no such thing as complete and total knowledge. Um, you know, the world uh, uh, and, and all of us creatures in it are constantly transforming. And so knowledge that is produced at one moment um, is going to be undone the next moment. That's just the nature of, <laughs> of existence and time. So, um, you know, I think... Um, I do, uh, I do feel very frustrated when people speak with certainty and a sense of unassailable righteousness about things that, um, or about things that are very complicated and in a way that, that erases that complexity, um, And so, you know, at the same time as, again, I'm very happy that there are people who speak that way and that there are people who, you know, produce other forms of knowledge, quantitative forms of knowledge, statistics, because there's a, you know, there's a power um, and effectiveness that that kind of knowledge and those kinds of arguments have. Um, But uh, yeah, and I think also the question of kind of shifting between voices or, you know, tones in the book is one that um you know emerges because there's different kinds of uh uh knowledge that are that are that I'm trying to produce out of the book right and so um you know there are these uh these moments that feel more immersive um there are moments that feel more conceptual uh there are moments that feel more historical and archival um, and, you know, hopefully all of those things kind of articulate together to give a picture and a kind of immersive picture that can also ha- be hung on or, um, uh, uh, give some flesh to these conceptual categories and ideas that travel outside of the context of Walter Reed. Um, and you know, sometimes what I'm talking about is something that we talk about in terms of the distinction between theory and ethnography in anthropology. So what I'm talking about is immersive moments are things that people might talk about as ethnographic moments. And what I'm talking about is this more conceptual stuff is things that people might talk about as theory. Um, But that's a false distinction between ethnography and theory. Um, And so, uh, you know, the, the book is every moment of the book is analytic. Some of those moments of analysis are these kind of immersive moments and some of them are these, you know, they kind of like float up into a, a higher conceptual space that can travel in a different way. Um so yeah.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Um so getting to the ethnography specifically, or the book, I should say, specifically, um, can you just describe for us uh, briefly, you know, where was your fieldwork, um, where and with whom and when, sort of the nuts and bolts of of the time period that you're writing about?
3: Sure, yeah. So um, the fieldwork that I that I write about in the book took place between uh, yeah, September 2007 I guess August 2008 and during that period I was mostly at Walter Reed Army Medical Center Walter Reed Military Medical Center um, as it's now well actually now it's called Walter Reed National um, Medical Center Um, but the Walter Reed Hospital which is the historic Flagship medical facility of the American military. It's not a VA hospital. It's it's a military hospital, and it's been around for a little over a hundred years. Um, and I was working. I was based primarily at the Fisher House, which is uh, the Fisher Foundation. Fisher House Foundation is a nonprofit organization that builds what they call comfort homes, or home away from home, homes away from home. At military and VA hospitals around the country and around the world and these are places that were originally envisioned for family members of aging veterans to be able to stay in in comfortable and communal settings while their veteran loved ones were going through treatment for cancer or you know having orthopedic surgery or you know any of the kind of afflictions that older veterans might experience Um, and then after 9-11 uh, it became immediately clear that there were going to be a, a, a younger soldiers who were going to be treated at military hospitals with combat injuries. And so the Fisher houses, a number of the Fisher houses, particularly the Fisher houses at, um, at Walter Reed and in a couple of other places, Brooks Army Medical Center in San Antonio and um, uh, and and a number of others, they kind of transformed into places for family members to stay during these long periods of rehabilitation, but also as a form of out, outpatient housing. Um, so I was, I was at Walter Reed, but I was with, I was based within this kind of funny little microcosm within Walter Reed. That was the Fisher house. And the folks who I was spending my time with were people, uh, soldiers, still active duty soldiers who had been very, very seriously hurt, in, um, in Iraq, the, the period that I was there was a period, um, kind of the end of the period of the most intense fighting of the the war in Iraq. Um, and it was a period of a kind of sort of lull um, in the war in Afghanistan, the intensity of the war in Afghanistan. And it was a moment it ended, my fieldwork ended at the moment, um, the moment right before Barack Obama became the um, democratic candidate for uh, the presidency in 2008. And when um, uh, the war in Afghanistan was beginning to get traction and there was, there was about to be this shift in uh, resources and attention and violence, um, uh, kind of reorienting everything um, to Afghanistan. So I was Working with these folks um, at Walter Reed and they, the soldiers who end up at Walter Reed are very badly hurt. So lots of people get um, lots of soldiers get hurt um, uh, in, in current forms of American warfare and don't ever leave they're the place where they're stationed. Right. So you can get, you can get blown up by an improvised explosive device in your vehicle and, you know, get checked out for concussion or whatever, and then never leave duty and never even be counted as a casualty. Um, if you, if you're not, if you're not, um, uh, removed from service for a little while, you don't necessarily get counted as a casualty. So, uh, you don't end up at Walter Reed unless you're quite seriously injured. You have to be, you know, you're medically evacuated. Usually people leave Iraq, get stabilized in Germany, the American military base in Landstuhl for a little while, and then would head to the States. And depending on the nature of injuries, you may end up at Walter Reed. Walter Reed specializes in prosthetics and has since uh, after the, the first world war. So, um if your if your most serious injury you, um is one that might include amputation or has already included amputation you'll probably end up at Walter Reed um and they also um uh have um really good rehabilitation they they have developed really good rehabilitation program So even if you're not going to have an amputation, if you have a lot of limb damage, um, then you probably will also end up at Walter Reed. Um, And during the period of my field work, the average stay for a soldier at Walter Reed was about a year and a half. Um, And uh, there were folks who I spent time with who spent like three years there. It wasn't that uncommon. Um, And, you know, oftentimes when we think about war injuries, particularly when we think about amputation, which is often the kind of iconic image of the, the injured soldier body is a body with an amputation and without any other visible injuries, um, we get the wrong picture because these kinds of injuries that, that um, about 60% of injuries in Iraq and Afghanistan are caused by improvised explosive devices. So people are getting blown up. And when a person gets blown up, a lot of things, a lot of different things happen to them. So um, they may have uh, broken bones, they may have burns, they may have shrapnel injuries, they may have broken eardrums, they may have head trauma, uh, they may have damage to internal organs, they may have skin that becomes flayed from their from their bodies. Um, they may have amputations that occur traumatically, right? So the, the explosion itself may cause an amputation of a, of a limb. Um, you know, there's, there's this whole slew of things that happen to someone when their body is, is blown up, particularly when their body is blown up inside a vehicle, um, which is often what was happening in the period that um, that we're talking about. So um, it's a really complex, complex set of injuries that requires a really complex set of medical interventions to stabilize the body in the aftermath of that injury. And so that's really what was happening at Malta Reed was, you know, uh, uh, the shorthand form is to say that it was rehabilitation, but really it's a a complicated process of medical stabilization Mm -hmm. of the body that involves repeated surgeries, many forms of medical intervention. Um, and increasingly you're seeing this trend of what are called delayed amputations. So people having, um, having surgeries to repair shattered limbs, going through a course of rehabilitation, deciding together with their clinicians that the limb isn't functional enough or uh, it's produced pain that is unmanageable, and then undergoing an amputation after already essentially having gone through surgery and rehabilitation. Um, So, um, you know, it's a space of tremendous uncertainty Um, about the conditions of one, one's body about the conditions of one's life. Um, and at the same time, it's a space that is very oriented toward, um, toward a future, this kind of rehabilitative imperative to, to get, to get better, to stabilize the body and to stabilize the social and intimate forms of life that are going to allow that body to be maintained as stable into the future. Um, and the Fisher house is a really interesting space to, to see this stuff happening because the Fisher house, the ethos of the Fisher houses is it's supposed to be at ordinary domestic space. Um, and so, you know, there's all of this stuff that, is incredibly intense. That's full of uncertainty that's marked by war violence. And, um, and that just screams out the exceptional quality, the extraordinary quality of what's happening in this moment in people's lives. But at the Fisher house, that's kind of being, um, it's nested within, uh, this, um, this emergent sense of, of ordinary domestic Life, unmarked ordinary domestic life. And so, um, a lot of what, what, what the book is about is about the tension between those two things. And, um, that happens at a political, a political register, you know, when we think about healing veterans and, um, one of the things that happens is that these kind of happy stories about injured veterans, injured soldiers and veterans who kind of get married and have children and like maybe like start a business of their own or go on the inspirational speaking circuit. Um, These stories are uh, they can offer people hope, but they are also ways of erasing the violence of war um, and kind of allowing um, civilians to imagine and feel like, and see that the violence of war can be uh, erased and, and, fully repaired by, um, by, by forms of normative forms of intimacy, as well as by uh, military medicine.
2: Yeah. And these, um, uh, what I felt when I was reading the book, what, what felt like extremes to me, not to necessarily put them on uh, a, like a linear scale, but what felt like extremes between domesticity and, um, and the home, and on the other hand, violence and the interruption of of daily life, um, or of the ordinary, was kind of was dizzying to 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 read about, and I'm sure it was even more dizzying, I'm sure, to experience. Um, and um, and it, it kind of gets to my my next question, which um, was you. I think at the beginning of the book, you specifically stated that, you know, this isn't an ethnography of an institution. Um, you know, you're not writing because that's a whole genre, right, of, of the ward or the institution, whether it's like the hospital or the prison or whatever. Um, and that's not what you're doing. And so um, you've touched on this a little bit already, but I wanted you to describe um, what was it an ethnography of? I mean, you told us about like the people and the places, but um, what were you trying to
3: get at? Yeah. So a lot of, um, it's, it, it was interesting to me to, um, to find my way to an answer to that question because it was one that I asked myself a lot. Um, you know, in the beginning, when I started my dissertation field work, I thought that I was going to do an ethnography of a discourse. Right. And then that, um, that disappeared. Um, but What it's, you know, what it's really about or what it's an ethnography of is, um, I would say a couple of things. One is the experience of being, um, constituted as a subject in this suffocating tension between the ordinary and the extraordinary that characterizes contemporary American attitudes towards war violence, Um, and at the same time, it's an ethnography of, uh, the, the ordinary and the extraordinary at a, in a more abstract way. Um, which is, you know, one of the things that I say often throughout the book is that it's about, um, a lot of the things that happen at Walter Reed are amplifications of things that happen in other spaces. And so, um the book is, is about in some sense, the continuity between experiences, war born experiences that are marked as extraordinary and civilian experiences that are marked as ordinary. Um, and um, you know, it's also an ethnography that is very much about intimacy and, uh, intimacy as a, um, as a kind of simultaneously private and public relation that is manifest in, in bodies and their arrangements in space. Um, so, you know, I mean, like there's a place in the introduction where I do my best. There's like a paragraph in the introduction where I, I try really hard to say what this book is about in a kind of concise way. Um, but, as is characteristic of my um, thinking, the book is about um, many things simultaneously, right? And um, the the arrangement of the, the hierarchy of those things is something that I really resist. Um, so to say it's an ethnography of injured soldiers and uh, focuses on, um, you know, masculinity, uh, 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 you know, rhetoric of sacrifice and gratitude, you know, these, these things that are, that are, you know, that there are chapters about in the book. Um, I don't, I don't think about the book that way. Um, and I don't really want it to, to, to be that. Um, I want it to be kind of all of these things at the same time. Um, but you know, it is, it's also, it will be interesting to me to to see what this book is like in say 10 years. Um, because I think that, uh, you know, as American military policy changes, as American military action moves, um, becomes kind of re-territorialized in, in different places, the geography of American military intervention, um, uh, kind of morphs as all of that stuff happens, I think that this book might also be an ethnography of a very specific moment in um, uh, in American military history, actually. Um, and um, you know time time will tell. Um, that's actually
2: that's that's the question that I had as I was reading it, um, was you know how particular um, some of the things that you were talking about were to that moment. Uh, like even when you were talking about, uh, I believe in the first chapter, when you were talking about the uh, ordinary and extraordinary, when you were talking about like the fragments of people's stories, Um, and the lack of a narrative um, or like the classic war story that we think about. Well, on the one hand, I wondered, um, to what extent is this particular to the place and time that these soldiers are in, in their own life and making sense of their own experiences, but on the other, like, how is this particular to the kind of war we're in? Um, And I was even thinking about that Uh, Or is this even war anymore? Uh, I was thinking about that also when you were writing about Walter Reed. um, And uh, a question I had was, uh, there there are clear continuities that you are, that you describe in that chapter uh, about the kinds of um, national narratives and uh, performances that Walter Reed participates in their continuities clearly. But I also wondered, you know, what was particular to the current moment? I mean, you used, you talked about, um, you talked about are continuities, right. Of, of, this genre. Um, I, I, I can't remember the exact term that you used. It was like goth war Gothic. Um, but that there are particularities to the structure of feeling for each war. Um, And so it made me wonder, well, what's, what is particular about, if you can maybe elaborate on that, like what's particular about this war, this moment. Um, I mean, I just had a lot of images that were brought in my mind, whether it was the fragments of the soldier's stories, whether it was the small, you talk about small war in their daily lives, whether it was just shrapnel as this like metonymic object, um, yeah I don't know if you you could speak to that,
3: yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that there's you know there are these continuities and then there there are also differences, and there are these these themes and affective resonances that appear again and again and again, right throughout the the archive of modern American war, which I tried to sort of reproduce in the second in the second chapter of of the book um, and uh and they are you know, tweaked and toned, um, in different ways, uh, in each of these eras. And some of the things, you know, the, the kind of, um, that idea of these kind of fragment stories and fragments, um, you know, the, in some ways the, the difficulty of telling a war story is an enduring theme, um, in the United States. Um, and this, Kind of fragmentary nature, I think is uh, uh, mimetic of the um, the the fragmentary nature of the politics surrounding the war itself um, so on the one hand, you had this kind of grand narrative that the um, event of 9-11 ushered in this kind of you know clash of civilizations sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, there were all of these um, kind of forms of incoherence that that um, uh, political incoherence, the incoherence of the narratives, the questions about you know weapons of mass destruction, all of these forms of uncertainty and incoherence that um, that were kind of simmering beneath the surface. Um, and those, you know, there are these kind of punctum moments when those those fragments um, uh, disturb the narrative. So Abu Ghraib. Uh, would be, you know, one of those moments. Um, and, um, in some sense, this is very different than say the Vietnam era where you had, uh, where the, the narrative of the kind of domino effect of, you know, communism, that this was, you know, that, that, that this war, the war, in, the American war in Vietnam was, um, uh, you know, this kind of essential, um, Uh, backstop against the communist takeover of of the globe, that that was not not a very effective narrative even at the time, right? Um, And I think, you know, another thing that's very particular about this moment, um, the post-9-11 moment, that, you know, a lot of people will point out is that you have fewer people's smaller percentage of the American population serving in the military than, than ever before during a time of war Um, less than 1% of Americans are, are in the military. And um, you have this, this kind of contradiction during the Bush years where there was this intense emphasis on kind of uh, fear mongering and uh, militaristic, Pride, a combination of those two things, that really pushed war to the foreground of um, political rhetoric and and um, moral politics in the United States, and gave the soldier uh, and the soldier's body the supreme place. Um, which it hadn't had for a very long time. And that I think it it had in this post 9-11 moment in a way that was slightly different than, um, than it had ever had before. But uh, at the same time, you have uh, this imperative to, you know, to go out and shop, to um, allow life to be undisturbed. And that that uh, was transformed into uh, uh, the civilian duty during These wars. Right. So, you know, if we think about World War Two or World War One, the era of selective service, when um, you had a form of total war that mobilized the total population, um, now you have this kind of strange situation where um, your obligation to the nation in a time of war and to soldiers in a time of war is basically to pretend like war doesn't exist unless you see a soldier at the airport and then you have to shake his hand. Um, so, you know, it's very, um, uh, the, the contradictions are so much on the surface right now. Um, I mean, I I won't say right now, but I'll say, you know, in the, in the moment of in which the, The ethnography was conducted and the book was written um, because I think we're in a slightly different moment right now. But um, uh, so I think, you know, that's part of it. And then related to that, the, you know, the, the overwhelming reasons that people join the military, certainly the people who I worked with. But, you know, this is this is true more generally are pragmatic, right? They don't have anything to do with patriotism. They don't have anything to do with, um, uh, fighting terrorists or, you know, they incidentally have to do with those things, but people tend to join the military for economic reasons to access health insurance, to access education benefits. Um, and, uh, this is, um, this is the first War, where we're seeing that this era of warfare is the first time that we're really seeing that happen in a sustained way. Um, you know, we had the draft during Vietnam, and we had drafts before that. Um, and while the you know the first GI Bill um, emerged out of out of World War II and did put in place these um, forms of incentivizing people into joining the military, it was really envisioned as a, as a kind of payment after the fact rather than incentive, uh, uh, before the fact. And when the military ended the draft in 1973, you know, it had this problem. How do we create a standing army that is big enough to fight the kinds of wars that we might need to fight? And so it had to create this, this, um, system of incentives. And so, um, the the kind of moral politics around military service right now are quite um are quite different than they ever have been before, um both because of that set of incentives, the depoliticized um nature of enlistment and you know and kind of anti-political nature of enlistment, um and also the the fact that there are fewer um uh people, you know, smaller percentage of the of the population serving than than ever before.
2: So related to that, I I wanted to ask you about um, the third chapter in which you talk about the economy of sacrifice. Um, And I would like you to describe what that is um, and uh, how that impacted the soldiers. Because I feel like um, the idea of sacrifice uh, at these very public displays of supporting our troops, thanking our troops, et cetera, is, is very, I think, well known and well felt. Um, I feel like what you were making visible in your work was uh, how these soldiers are asked to participate in that and the role that they play or don't play <laughs> and sort of what, what what's being what ways, what, you know, how they're being pulled, I guess, within this economy.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So the, this thing that I talk about, this economy of patriotism is a way of um, thinking about these exchanges of, um, of gratitude as things that produce debt. Right. And so, um, you know, here I'm drawing on, on, uh, on ideas of the gift in anthropology, like you know, Marcel Mauss, but also, um, Nietzsche and his, um, reading of the, uh, sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that it was one that, that had this kind of ironic twist, that it was a sacrifice that was supposed to kind of even things out, which is what sacrifices are supposed to do. Um, but, but actually it was a sacrifice that produced an unpayable debt. And so, um, you know, in, there is this imperative, to thank soldiers for their sacrifice and for their service. And um, at Walter Reed, which is a very public place, there are volunteers and VIPs and politicians, generals, you know, um, journalists, all kinds of people coming through all the time. And they come to Walter Reed to to see and to touch and to thank these injured soldiers for their sacrifice. Um, And the, the words that they say are so formulaic, there is almost this kind of ritual quality to, to doing it, um, uh, uh, or maybe not even ritual, but sort of automatic quality to saying, thank you for your service. Um, and um, uh, the question is never supposed to be asked, um, what exactly is it that you're thanking me for? right so you know superficially the idea is supposed you know goes something like you are a great patriot you join the military to defend my freedom um, uh, you were uh, uh, gravely hurt you you gave your body for the sake of my freedom and I want to express my gratitude to you for that and that's the end of the moral implication the moral obligations that we have to each other um, you know uh, uh now we can kind of go about our lives. Right. Um, and there are so many pieces of bullshit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on, in the new books network, but, uh, there are so many, um, uh, uh, just, you know, uh, uh, absurdities within that framework, um, including the fact that, you know, people don't usually join the military, because they want to, you know, the primary reason people join the military is not usually because they want to defend, um, uh, a civilian's freedom. Um, and, uh, the, the, the thank you is simultaneously, it, it, it performs itself as if it's a, a recognition, but actually what it is, is an erasure, right? So it says, thank you for your service and thank you for your sacrifice, but it erases the many forms of violence that, Um, uh, produce the conditions within which these two people are encountering each other, both the violence that, that soldiers, injured soldiers have experienced and the violence that they have produced. Um, And, you know, produced in the course of their, their job, their, their duty as, as soldiers. So um, uh, it can be profoundly unsettling for soldiers and veterans to find themselves being slotted into this kind of exchange, um, because of those erasures, because of also the ways that it's very difficult to get out of that, that exchange or to, um, to try and challenge that narrative, there are consequences to challenging that narrative. So if you, if someone says, you know, and there's a couple of accounts that I offer in the book of people who do respond, um, in, uh, challenging ways when they find themselves interpolated into this position of this, you know, sacrificing Patriot and, um, uh, you know, people who say, uh, you know, one person who, who says to, a um, the the head of a, of a VA from the Midwest who's come to visit Walter Reed, uh, you know, who says to him, um, well, you know, thank you. Um, thank you for your, your sacrifice. He says, you know, and, and you should also say thank you for your job because if I didn't get blown up, you wouldn't have a job. Right. And that's like an unspeakable thing. (laughs) And, you know, and he does it and it produces, it produces a kind of trouble in the moment that, that nobody knows how to get around. And eventually this guy from this VA just kind of moves on to the next person um, who is more compliant in his participation in this narrative. But the consequences of doing something like that are, are really deeply felt and are really, you know, pretty serious and material. So like you can lose access to the, really wide network of support services for soldiers and veterans that, um, uh, you know, all of these veteran service organizations out there that, uh, that make life livable for a lot of veterans, you can lose access to them. You can be labeled as crazy and potentially violent. Um, you can be seen as dishonoring the people in your unit, um, by being insubordinate and, uh, ungracious, um, and you know that can be really wounding to people. So, uh, so it's it puts it puts soldiers in a really difficult position um, because the consequences of challenging someone in that exchange are are quite dire for them. Um, and you know, and it's and it's also a thing that civilians. And, you know, and people and even people in military families and stuff, you know, not just not just civilians who feel themselves to be very far removed from the military, but um, the people do in this kind of automatic way. So often they don't uh, they don't think about what it means. They don't think about what they're doing when they do these things. Um, And they don't think about the way that these exchanges can act as an attempt to absolve civilians of any further obligation to think about their relationship to American military violence.
2: Yeah, and I think we have um, we have an impoverished uh, vocabulary, or just I don't know. Yeah, an impoverished vocabulary on which to draw. Um, and and set of experiences on which to draw when encountering folks. I mean, I, when I was reading those uh, encounters, I thought about my own when I was a medical student in the VA hospital um, for a good amount of time in San Francisco. Um, And all of my patients obviously were veterans. Um, Most of them were older. um, So many of like Vietnam, Korea. Um, And I would reflexively also say very similar things. Um, a little bit self-aware of, of, of this like role that I was kind of entering into. Um, And from your position at, uh, at, at the Fisher house um, and in these like space, these domestic spaces or like going out with these soldiers to, you know, the mall or out to eat or wherever um, you saw it show up in a lot of different places. I mean, obviously it, it happened on the street. Um, with folks like you told that one story of a stranger just showing up with his hand outstretched, expecting to be able to shake the the soldier's hand. Um, but then also how and then also that story you told of the visiting VA director of how. Walter Reed and also Fisher house become this stage for performing this economy over and over and over again that the soldiers get drawn into um, and I was wondering if you could describe um, the freepers sure yeah
3: yeah and I should say so and this is you know the freepers are a good example of this that you know a lot of people particularly people who are um, uh, who have a who have a more acute awareness of the um, the 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 difficulties and kind of, you know, the 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 difficulties that that um, American soldiers faced after Vietnam, um, the kind of vilification of American soldiers, the the the, the uh, overwhelming vilification of American soldiers, which is that story is is a more complicated story um, than than often we make it seem, but these exchanges and, and soldiers responses to them are also conditioned by an acknowledgement and a kind of gratitude that, um, uh, you know, at least we're not being spit on, at least we're not being called baby killer. At least people are, um, trying to acknowledge us in some way, even if that acknowledgement ends up producing, uh, uh, all of these problems and forms of misrecognition. Um, so yeah the Freepers were a group um a really interesting group of folks who had um a, a couple of them were, were Vietnam veterans actually and um they got wind of uh, um these vigils so the group Code Pink which is a, a feminist um anti-war uh, left-wing organization that's been around for um, since since before the war but but really kind of consolidated a lot of its activism um, after the war started in in, um, in Iraq and Afghanistan um, they were holding vigils on Friday nights at the main entrance uh, of Walter Reed and the freepers they are they have a um, an online community um, and website um, called free Republic. And they're a a right-wing organization and a very kind of um, hawkish, um, pro pro military organization or, you know, community of people. They found out about these vigils, um, and, uh, thought that the vigils were exploitative and, and disgusting. And they wanted to get the code pink, um, people away from Walter Reed so that, um, that the soldiers who were there could see a a message of support rather than of uh, criticism of the war. And, you know, Code Pink, um, is very, they, they, they are an organization that has close ties to Iraq veterans against the war. They're not by any means a kind of anti-veteran organization. Um, and, uh, the Freepers, um, through their networks with local law enforcement, found out when Code Pink's uh, uh, permit was going to be up because you have to have a permit to have this vigil. So they found out when their permit was going to be up and they kind of snuck in um, bureaucratically and got permits for all four corners of the street um, at the main entrance of Walter Reed So code pink, if they wanted to have a vigil, they would have to have it way down the block. And what they would do is they would show up every Friday night, rain or shine, you know, sleet or snow with a giant banner. um, And they changed the banner. They called it the mother of all banners, the the MOAB. And um, they would have, you know, kind of, you know, honk if you love veterans, um, uh, these different, kind of patriotic slogans, lots of flags, and red, white, and blue. And they would wait for this big bus that would come back every Friday night. Um, There was another person who had organized these uh, steak dinners every Friday night. So a bus would come to Walter Reed, pick up a bunch of soldiers and their family members, take them out for a fancy dinner, and then bring them back. And the Freepers would camp out at the entrance and be there when the bus came back, to wave their banners and to, um, uh, to, you know, show their sign of support, um, uh, for these veterans or for these soldiers. Um, and you know, I, 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 um, I talked to the Freepers a little bit, and then I also had the experience of being on that bus with, um, with soldiers coming back from these dinners and could hear the way that the Freepers were kind of narrated. Right. And, um, you know, on the one hand, it is it is kind of exciting to come back and to see these people who were referred to by the, um, the one of the organizers of the steak dinners as the good guys, right? Um, here are the good guys supporting you and waving at you, and you can wave back at them. Um, and there would be these kinds of exchanges at a distance between um, the soldiers and the, and the freepers. Um, and the freepers really uh, you know, as I said, some of them were were, were themselves veterans, Vietnam era veterans and the, the, um, you know, parents of veterans or spouses of veterans. Um, and they really thought about what they were doing as kind of protecting, uh, the soldiers inside Walter Reed from the, uh, the kind of negative vibe, the kind of like overly somber and negative vibe of the code pink vigil. Um, And there was also this kind of ironic element because one of the the main organizers, the the kind of head freepers who I talked to, he talked about wanting to create a space in which the veterans didn't have to do anything but heal. Um, And of course, the irony is that actually what you're doing is in trying to protect them from this thing that you think is harmful, you're actually producing this other um, set of discomforts and obligations. Um, And, you know, and in the couple of conversations that I had with the key freepers, well, when they're out there and they're waving their flags and in the stuff that they write on their website, they think about what they're doing in these very self-righteous and black and white terms, um, of course, talking to them, there are there are a lot more subtleties and nuances that come out, including a certain awareness of the, the tensions that, that they're producing.
2: Yeah, I thought that um, exchange you had uh, was pretty striking and um, similar to a lot of the contradictions that you described throughout the rest of the book. Um, and I was wondering um, if you could tell us about uh, how in the last chapter... Um, you describe how kinship and intimacy and the domestic space that the Fisher house um, was trying to produce uh, participated in the soldiers sort of making of ordinary lives or desire for ordinary lives um, in, in their time at Walter Reed.
3: Yeah. So yeah, in the last chapter, um, you know, the last chapter is about, it's, I mean, it's called Intimate Attachments and the Securing of Life. And um, it's a chapter that is about laminating these questions about the physical possibility and biological possibility of continuing to live after these kinds of intense injuries, together with ideas about social and intimate life and the kinds of life or the forms of life that are understood to be worth living after, after war. Um, uh, and so one of the things that, um, you know, that was very, uh, apparent at Walter Reed, both in the space of the Fisher house, but also in, in other contexts and kind of built into the programs of rehabilitation that they have there are these ideas that, you know, most people are not going to be able to stay in the military because of their injuries. Although many, many people would prefer to, many, many injured soldiers would prefer to stay in the military. Um, and so the question is, okay, what is your life going to look like after this? And, um, there's this intense imperative to produce, uh, uh, happy heterosexual couples that live together in houses of their own. Um, and that really is the apotheosis of rehabilitation in in this era. Um, and that social form has always been uh, a specter or sometimes a goal, uh, a, a kind of figure in post-war rehabilitation in other eras. But in this era, um it really takes precedence over other things, like for example, being employable, which um Certainly, in the in the World War One moment, was understood as um, maybe the, the the primary imperative. So, um, uh, this chapter kind of explores questions of uh, of intimacy, sociality, and solitude uh, as ways of thinking, in part, about these normative futures that people are being nudged towards and also that people often want while at the same time um, uh, experiencing themselves in a space that uh, really undermines the possibility of achieving those ordinary futures. And so it's a structure of fantasy and a structure of desire that is quite cruel. um, um, And, you know, and cruel in the the sense that Lauren Berlant has talked about, where you know the um the the object of your desire is an obstacle to your flourishing. These these desires for these ordinary futures can, in fact, um, uh, impede people's ability to uh, to feel stable or to have the kinds of care that they want in their lives, um, or to. Um, cultivate the kinds of attachments that will sustain them over the long term. And so in this chapter, you know, I also talk a little bit about suicide. Um, and one of the things that, and I, you know, in things that I've written after the book, I, I kind of focus on this a little bit more. Um, but one of the things that, that sort of is a consequence of, of what is essentially an attempt to, um, well, what is an attempt to uh, to make people happy, right. (laughs) Um, To allow them to, to inhabit these, these good life futures is that you end up with a situation where life is only really imaginable in this very narrow way. Um, So without the trappings of domesticity and conjugal couplehood, it's very difficult for people to imagine continuing to live and suicide then starts to become the thing that is opposed to conjugal couplehood. Um, And so you get this weaving together of biological forms of life and social forms of life. And this incredibly tyrannical uh, example of heteronormativity Um, and you know, this is a, the military space and the veteran space are incredibly heteronormative spaces, right? They're spaces that are really heavily structured and incentivized um, by uh, heteronormative imperatives. And they're also spaces uh, where the experiences that people have that put them into those spaces, military experiences, combat experiences, experiences of injury and disability, um, undermine... The possibility of of approaching um, or inhabiting in some kind of seamless way those heteronormative ideals um, and those 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 tensions are things that I am continuing to think about as I do new work with um, with veterans over the long term
2: yeah, and I was wondering if you could um flesh out one an example or two from that chapter, uh, I don't know if, uh, Jake and Danielle, um, would be a good example of what you were talking about, that kind of, uh, cruel optimism that they were,
3: that he was set up for. Um, I mean, Jake is, um, you know, he is someone who I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time with and, um, uh, he's kind of one of the people who, whose lives I was the most involved with. And, um, he uh, he was in this relationship. He he became he got married to his girlfriend um, after his injury. They had never lived together before, so their first experience of living together was you know crammed into this room at the Fisher House. Um, and um, she was uh, she was pregnant. Um, she had also been sick herself, and he was incredibly concerned and, and focused more than, um, more, I think maybe even than any, anyone else who I got to know want want to read on doing the right thing. Um, and doing the right thing often to him meant, um, uh, was, it was, was a very gendered category. Right. And, um, so they, they fought, um, they fought a lot, um, And Jake was committed to, to maintaining that relationship and, um, uh, making sure that they stayed together. And, um, uh, it was very difficult for him to do that in part because, uh, when she became sick, when she was pregnant, she was put on bed rest um, back home and home was, you know, about a six hour drive away. And so he would do these things that were sort of against the rules, driving to go and spend the night with her, um, you know, almost falling asleep in his car, um, while he was driving on the highway, um, you know, potentially missing appointments, doing this kind of very complicated calculus about, um, you know, what, where he would sleep and when he would sleep and if he would sleep and, um, in order to maintain this relationship. And, um, uh, and then when she was, uh, visiting him one night, and then the, the other thing I should say about Jake is that he had this very, very close relationship with Manny, who was another um, soldier who was at the Fisher house and they were, you know, they were almost inseparable. They, they did, um, they, they did everything together. They spent time together. They worked on cars together. Um, and, um, they had this kind of idea of maybe one day, uh, opening up a garage together. And, uh, Jake even went and scoped out a possible location for their garage when he was on leave once. Um, and so he had this kind of alternate future that he was imagining in a, in a not very invested way, I guess, um, that was this future of him and Manny. Right. Um, and then all of, you know, he put all of this intense energy into maintaining this relationship, um, uh, with Danielle. And, uh, then one night when she was, um, back at Walter Reed with him, uh, they were having a fight and she, she hit him, she hit him in the face. And, um, he decided that that was the last straw and he uh, he kicked her out and he told his mother who was also around um, to uh, get a divorce divorce lawyer. And he said that that was kind of the last straw. Um, and he moved into the the barracks and he moved out of the Fisher house and into the barracks, which is where sing, single soldiers uh, could stay because you couldn't um, stay in the Fisher house if you didn't have a family member with you. And um, he, he seemed to be kind of unburdened and relaxed. He said to me that he felt much more like himself um, without her around. But um, at the same time, he had been contacted by a veteran service organization who was contemplating um, uh, putting him forward as a candidate for a for a house. So there was a number of different veteran service organizations that build uh, uh, adapted houses for injured veterans. And he was, he was looking at the possibility of getting one of these houses and in this sort of subtle way, um, he was told, you know, you have an, there's an opportunity for you and your wife to go on CNN and to talk about your experiences and to basically like be this poster couple for the, the happy um, um, post-injury family. And um, we'd really like for you to do that. So He did it. He and Danielle went on CNN and, um, they, they talked about, they smiled for the cameras and they talked about their, uh, good experiences and their happy relationship. Um, and he, it, you know, he couldn't imagine that he would get a house, uh, which was something that he really needed if he didn't do it within this, uh, form, right. You know, if you didn't do it as part of this happy couple, um, even though there was a single soldier who we knew who, who had a house that was being built for him. So, um, the, it's very difficult to kind of, to escape, um, this, this fantasy and it's very difficult to escape these imperatives. Um, and again, there are these kind of material consequences behind these things, um, and, uh, you know, and it's a, it's a tricky thing analytically because, you know, Jake really, that's what he wanted, right? He wanted to have, he wanted to be a good man and being a good man meant, you know, sticking it out with his wife and being married to his wife so that he could be present as a father for his children. Um, and, uh, uh and it was only this kind of exceptional form of, of incidents of domestic violence that, that you know, that, that opened the possibility of doing something else. Um, and, um, uh, and even after that possibility was opened, he was, he was trapped in that imaginary. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, he said to me, um, uh, you know, another thing that he said to me that I write about in the book is that we were, we were talking about, um, his the the difficulty that he was having with his um uh, with his rehabilitation we were talking about his pain we were talking about him kind of facing an, an amputation and all of the surgeries that come with the a, a a delayed amputation um and we were talked we had, you know, talked about violence and and um uh, violence involving civilians that he had been involved in in Iraq um and uh, he he said to me that the, the only thing that he regretted was, um, uh, getting married. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, it's just a very, the, 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 um, the solidity, the apparent solidity and reliability of this social form of, of conjugal couplehood, um, is, you know, it seems so it's in, it has a very strange relationship to, um, to, to the violence of war. I mean,
2: and it has a very strong gravitational pull clearly. Um, I also thought it was interesting, uh, that it it wasn't just, um, being single that was juxtaposed to being coupled. It was also, you gave an example of the, um, uh, of the soldier who, felt infantilized by his parents who wanted to and seemed very capable of taking care of him. Uh, but, but very zealously pursued a very heteronormative ideal of, of, uh, not necessarily being in a couple like a monogamous couple, but, um, was sort of running away from, uh, the parents to pursue his masculine sexuality. Um, so that was interesting as well. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time already today. Um, uh, and you already alluded to this before, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you are working on next. And um, if you are following up with any of these, uh, these people that you um, followed in the book, now that it's almost
3: 10 years later. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah to answer that second question first I have had a really hard time keeping in touch with people um, uh, who were in the book, and and uh, at this point, I'm not actually in touch with any of them. Although I do know the whereabouts of some of them, um, but uh, it was interesting to me also that um, that they mostly did not keep in touch with each other. Um, and I think now that I am, I'm doing work with uh, with veterans and kind of thinking about. In part about the the social relationships and forms of care that emerge around them over the long term, including the ways that these same imperatives, these same heteronormative imperatives that we were just talking about, kind of uh, uh, have collateral effects. Thinking about what the dark sides of those um, those imperatives are um, over the long term, um, it's not that surprising to me to see to to imagine the way that this kind of time at Walter Reed might. Um people might want to kind of swallow that uh, within a different narrative about um, uh, about recovery or about transformation um, uh, that that moment um, that moment of profound uncertainty and precariousness, um, a moment when like everything has fallen apart and everyone is doing all that they can to just barely hold everything together, um, that that's not necessarily a moment that people want to, um, want to celebrate or want to, um, re-inhabit. Um, and, um, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I mean, I do, you know, one of the people in the book who was, a, you know, who was very, um, a very devoted father ended up and husband ended up finding out that, um, uh, in fact, um, he had been, he was not actually the father of of uh, the child that he thought he was the father of, and he found that out in the course of a set of divorce proceedings. And um, there's someone in the book who um, who had been um, uh, who had been reluctant to participate in these kinds of exchanges of gratitude, this economy of sacrifice and patriotism that I talked about before, and who then got a job um, for a veteran service organization, going around and giving talks about. Uh, uh, this sort of like slightly inspirational talks about, um, uh, you know, how we can thank soldiers for their service and support soldiers and Um, so a lot of, you know, a lot of interesting things happened and I do know that some of them, (laughs) some of them did um, uh, connect with each other, later through through cars um, a lot of them were very into working on cars um, and so some of them connected with each other because they were involved in building adaptive cars um, um, and some of them went on to um uh become more involved in music and you know so they went they went their separate ways um, they went their separate ways, and so yeah. In terms of what I'm doing, so um, so the, the the veteran project that I'm working on is is based primarily here in in Houston, the Houston area, um, and it's looking at the uh, so the socialities of care that emerge around veterans, uh, injured veterans, over the long term, and trying to think about uh, uh, both the way that kinship. Um, particularly heteronormative forms of kinship are transformed into uh, these mechanisms for providing care and what happens in those contexts, but also thinking about the non-kin relationships um, through which care is provided for, for veterans. And post-911 veterans have a really high percentage of like friends and neighbors who, who provide them with daily support. It's about almost 25% of um. Of, uh, of the people who provide help for post nine eleven veterans are not related to them. And um, that's a really high percentage compared to earlier generations of veterans and also compared to civilians. So thinking a little bit about those, um, those kinds of relationships, which we don't really know anything about. Um, and then I'm also, this project also involves putting these socialities of care in veteran worlds in conversation with practices that emerge in non veteran disability communities, um, where there are long traditions of improvising uh, social relationships and building these sort of improvisational care networks um, that allow people to receive the kind of support that they want and to participate in the kind of community that they want to participate in in a sustainable way over the long term. Um, and, uh, you know, an, an aim of, of of doing that is to create some traffic between the worlds of injured and disabled veterans and the worlds, uh, of, of, uh, disability community, because those worlds don't, um, connect. And, um, so yeah, the project aims to kind of produce some traffic there. Um, and I have, you know, many other projects, too many, really (laughs) and unadvisably, um, Uh, a full roster of research projects, but um, I'm also working on a project with uh, Ken McLeish, who is the author of another wonderful book about soldiers um, called making war at Fort hood. Uh, We're working together on a project about um, burn pits and burn pit related um, burn pit exposure related health um, consequences among veterans. um, And also, you know, the kind of toxicity and materiality of war more generally, um and then I also have a project about disability and technology um that I'm working on together with a mechanical engineer and a uh a- uh, human factors research design psychologist at Rice, um, which is really interesting and a lot of fun. And then I also have a historical kind of history of science project that's about um, the cortical homunculus. So uh, those are those are the things that I'm working on these days.
2: <laughs> wow, that sounds so exciting! Um, I would be interested in. Probably all of those. <laughs> um, well, congratulations! Well, stay tuned. Yeah. Thank you, Zoe. Uh, congratulations on the book, um, and I'm so excited to hear about your future work. And I want to thank you again for being on the show. I really enjoyed it.
3: Thank you. You're so welcome. Thanks for uh, thanks for the conversation. It was great.
2: I really enjoyed my conversation with Zoe Wool. I really admire how her work is so careful and attentive to the deep textures of lived experience like any great ethnography. Um, and of course, as you can imagine, you heard her ethnography is so rich. Uh, there's a lot that we did not get to. In particular, I would have loved to talk more about her critique of post-traumatic stress disorder, what she calls, quote, an analytic of movement. I want to read just a bit of what she's getting at um, in Chapter 4 of her book. She writes, I offer a different and more encompassing way of thinking about post-combat transformations, homecoming trouble, and the state of being post-traumatic. It is one that does not begin with pathology or diagnosis. But rather the experience of being disoriented and the vertiginous and not always successful process of becoming reoriented that is occasioned by transformations residing in a sensate moving soldier acting in a here and now that is itself transformed by the violence of a there and then. I urge anyone who's interested in the current moment, uh, this perpetual war on terror, um, contemporary studies of trauma, war, and rehabilitation to read on. Well, thanks for listening and catch you later on New Books in Medicine. If you have any comments or feedbacks, I can be reached on Twitter at at Dana G. Field or at New Books Med. Thanks again and take care.